This is the 18th season of Bass Talk Live. With your host, Matt Pangrad. BTL is brought to you by Lorance, Bass Cat Boats, AFCO, Strike King Lures, Sunline, Big Bite Baits, Spro, X-Zone Lures, Gamakatsu, The Bass Tank, Denali Rods, and Pro Guide Batteries. PTL, coming at ya! Good morning and welcome to another exciting edition of BTL Bass Talk Live, where we are going to talk about bass fishing. Recorded show today, I'm currently... Uh, up in Wisconsin, Minnesota border uh, media event. Cool thing that they do every year. That's kind of when these things go down is in the fall. A lot of the Elite Series guys are there, BPT guys. So taking care of business up there. But in the meantime, I wanted to uh, I wanted to get an, an angler on a BPT angler uh, who I think has a unique perspective we've talked about are kind of coming down towards the end of the year, and I haven't had him on BTL in a while, and that is Louisiana's Gerald Spore. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, if you listen to, to Day 4 with Frankie, listen to some of the discussions I've had with Bradley Hallman and some of the other things, we've been talking a lot about uh, success on the water, what constitutes it, what doesn't, enjoyment, is it results versus meaning that you derive from it. And Gerald's an interesting case because, uh, because dude, he, I think he's gotten to the point where he's figured out how to k- successfully catch fish consistently on the water. But then he's also got this whole other side patch. We've talked a little bit about it with, uh, Jeff Creed. I know Randall Tharp, a number of the other guys, uh, ish out on the West coast likes it, but it's the saltwater bug. And there's a number of these guys, uh, and Adrian Avina's big saltwater dude too, that once they get the saltwater bug, it's a, it's an entirely different, uh, different animal. So Gerald, thanks for jumping on BTL. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I was trying to make sure when I texted you to do this, I was like, you're probably offshore, but I was wondering if you got time to jump on, uh, to jump on BTL. So, uh, a few days off from the big boat this week. Yeah, I'm actually in between big boats right now. I just sold my, uh, 31 foot catamaran twin V that I had, and we're building a new one right now. It's called a encore catamaran. And this one's going to be in the Miami Boat Show. Uh, so we're putting forth a lot of effort, bringing in industry people into this from lighting, lighting systems to sound systems. Uh, Lorance stepped up. You know, they're putting in those Simrads and Suzuki's coming out with some new engines. And uh, so we're building a boat right now for the Miami Boat Show in February. And so I'm, I'm kind of I don't have an offshore boat right now. That seems like it's a lot of. That's a lot of work putting together an offshore boat too, isn't it? I mean, that, these things, this is not like a bass boat where they like everything just comes in a crate and they put it on in a day and a half in a, in a, uh, in a bay with, at, at the dealership. No, there's a lot of coordination that goes in place. Uh, all these boats are different and, and there's so many things you can get it to do. Like this boat, particularly I'm building it specifically to fish blue Marlin tournaments. And I want to be able to uh, keep, Keeping bait alive in a blue marlin tournament is a big deal. Uh, we actually catch blue marlin on 
a smaller tuna, like blackfin tuna. We'll use that for bait all the way up to 30 and 40 pounds would be a big would be a big bait. But you'll actually put a 40 pound bait on live to try to feed it to a five, six, seven hundred pound blue marlin. Um, so uh, getting the water, uh, the water feed right to keep a bait that size alive is very difficult. So there's a lot of engineering and flow rates and pressures and all this stuff you got to calculate in and every boat's different. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that go into building one of these boats cause it needs to be right the first time. All right. So when was it, was it like five years ago that I went out in Venice with you in the bass boat? I think you had the cat at the time we ran out. You ran across all the oyster bars. We ran out to Venice. We caught. I was obsessed with the sheep's head. I still am obsessed with the sheep's head. The black and white bars. You were like, we're not keeping those. Are I was like, heck yeah. If we go out here, then we caught trout. We caught redfish. We caught a bunch of different stuff. But at the time, you know, you're a you're a Louisiana guy. You've been familiar with the salt, but you weren't into the offshore stuff at the time. Correct? Like this is kind of in the past, like five or six years that you've really dove into the big water. Well, I've always gone offshore fishing ever since I was a little kid. Uh, my grandfather took us on a family trip every Thanksgiving and we would just go out and bottom fish on these big boats. And I was always obsessed with offshore fishing. It just captivated me. Um, and then, you know, over the years I would go with people I wouldn't know and, but I'd never had a chance to be my own captain. And then finally I was able to make a commitment and, and get into it on my own and make my own decisions and, uh, create my own success. What's the difference between like co-angling in a bass tournament and being the captain of a offshore boat? Is it like somewhat similar or is it way more responsibility in the offshore boat than the bass boat? The captain has a lot of responsibilities on an offshore boat because it's, uh, you can get in a lot of different situations. You know, I go often, I'll go out a hundred miles away from land and we'll spend multiple days out there. And so there's a lot of safety precautions you have to take. You're always watching the weather. You're always paying attention to the wind and the waves. And, um, you know, there's a lot of safety checks. You know, you got to make sure we have like satellite positioning devices that go off and contact the Coast Guard. Uh, we have Garmin inreaches that where we can communicate with emergency contacts on land, have a six man life raft. I have to make sure that's up to date all the time. Um, there's just a lot of things that a captain needs to pay attention to versus just going bass fishing you're like man I just need to make sure i have gas in my boat when you go bass fishing but no when you're going offshore and you have six other people in the boat uh the captain kind of takes on all the responsibilities and at the same time tries to figure out how we're going to put everybody on fish harder to find fish in the ocean or on a lake like what's how does how is there any similarities on that like can you look at your I'm assuming contour mapping and go, oh, here's like a break with a flat we should fish. Is there any similarities between like a largemouth or smallmouth bass and a swordfish or a tuna or a marlin? Surprisingly, there is. And really? Yes. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> there's a term we use a lot in saltwater and we call it pelagics. Yeah. Fish tend to roam the abyss and target bait. So you have your pelagic species in the in the ocean, like all your billfish, your blue marlin, your sailfish, uh, your white marlin, all your tuna. Uh, all those fish are pelagics. And what they do is they just follow bait. Wherever the bait is, these fish can just all of a sudden be in one location. And then the next day they could be 
50 miles away following whatever the bait may be they're targeting. Uh, currents may shift or whatever, but these fish don't necessarily have to relate to a specific structure, even though they often do, but they don't have to, you know, they, they could just disappear on you. Well, a lot of people don't realize how pelagic smallmouth are. And, and, and so when we catch a smallmouth bass, typically it's because the smallmouth bass is in a place that we can target it, or it's easy for us to target it like a high percentage area. But when a smallmouth decides to become pelagic and just follow bait and he just gets out in the abyss that's when it gets hard for us as anglers to track them down because they could be anywhere. And so imagine we're trying to do that on a lake. Well, these fish in the Gulf of Mexico are doing this all the way to Mexico from the, the Gulf Coast. You know, I mean, it's massive. But to put it in perspective, uh, you're still out there trying to look for some sort of signal that tells you there's bait over there. There's birds diving over there. Uh, the current's hitting this part of the Gulf of Mexico a certain way, watercolor looks like this a certain way. And you try to pick a high percentage area in the middle of nowhere, even though it seems weird because you're like, Oh, there's no rock pile out there. There's no tree out. There's no lay down out in the middle of the lake. But sometimes there's a reason that the bait's getting to a certain part of the lake, even though it's in the middle, whether it's the way the current hits, um, Current clean water might be coming out of a bay and then you might have uh, dirty water that's coming out of a creek and then it's colliding with some kind of current from a north wind or something. Usually something like that is what still creates like an invisible structure. Um, and, and bass do that a lot. You know, a lot of times we show up to places like Lake Champlain where you got tons of wives and stuff. You know, you'll go and you, you go to your the same rock piles every year and you catch smallmouth on them. Well, some years they're good and some years they're not. And everyone starts to come up with a ton of excuses of why, why is it so fishing so bad? It's just the fish are chasing bait right now and they're out in the middle of nowhere. And then one day you show up like this past uh, pro circuit event they had over there and they just knocked their lights out. Well, it just so happened that those fish were really relating to the, the right kind of stuff. And, and to make it fair now, uh, you know, now we pursue those roam, those free roaming fish more than we ever did uh, with forward facing sonar. Well, that existed in saltwater 10 years ago. Uh, Their system in place, uh, you know, there was only one company that was making it. It was called Furuno and we call it sonar, but um, man, what's the official term for it? It's, it's the thing actually radar. No, it's a sonar that spins 360. It protrudes out of the bottom of the boat and it shoots 360 2D sonar around the boat and they have a longer range with it, but they'll actually follow a blue marlin for miles or in hours. And then they get out in front of him and let the baits out of the back to catch Wait a second. <laughs> they, were, they were chasing fish just like we see guys chase fish now on forward-facing sonar. They were chasing fish in the ocean with the big motors running, trying to catch these marlin 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And how now did we never hear about this. How did this never make it 10 years ago to like, how was this not a thing? Why? Well, it was, uh, it, it's very expensive. So that system on an offshore boat costs you about 250,000. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's why we never talked about it in bass fishing. Okay. Do you but... know of anybody who tried to take that technology and implement it? 
uh, not in bass fishing, but I know that's where these companies were, uh, you know, the same Garmin and Lawrence and all that other stuff. There's that's like, the genesis of a way to, to integrate this in our world. You know, it's not about looking down with a cone. We need to figure out how to look around us. Um, and so to me, that's the future of, forward-facing sonar forward-facing is just the empathy stage of what we're going to do at some point we're going to be 360 facing so you'll be able okay, to see how is this how is this going to look in your mind in my mind it's yeah like how okay way. explain how the 360 will work so i've seen it on the offshore boats right whatever. basically it 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 does 360 around the boat but it's only going to see a certain water column. I'm not trying to necessarily see the bottom. Okay. I'm trying to see, you know how we can set our, uh, our, our forward range to yeah. like 50 feet. Say you're trying to forward face in a hundred foot of water. Well, you'll set your range, take it out of auto. You put it in 50 feet. So it's co- constantly stop trying to auto adjust and you can target yeah. a certain water depth, Well, you'll be able to do that with like a 360 version. And you can say, dang, there's a fish over there to my right. And he's in about 15 foot of water and you just throw over there. You know, you might not get the same exact image as we do as an up and down image, but they should be able to capture yeah. a certain water column within a 360 radius around the boat. That's wild, isn't it? Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive what they've been able to do so far. Uh, and, and this technology is constantly gaining steam. I mean, this is just the beginning of it all. I remember when Steve Kennedy was trying to like put all these weird like transducers together to drag behind his boat to try to do like side imaging way back in the day before side imaging came out because side imaging was like super expensive and it was done by like I think the government and to find like stuff they were looking for in the mm-hmm. water like sunken ships and battleships and all that and Kennedy was like well I think I can make one of those <laughs> and, and and then it came out but yeah it's you know that's that seems to be the hot topic right now Gerald is is the forward facing technology the forward facing sonar how much is too much is there too much is it what i find interesting is even with the advances in technology the guys who are good are still good yeah absolutely um i remember the first year i ran forward facing sonar i bombed three tournaments in a row with it because i found myself trying to make fish bite that wouldn't bite i could see them i knew they were there it confirmed that it was there, but normally I would run up on the Tennessee River and I would fire 10 casts at this ledge. If I got a school to fire that I thought would be there, they would either fire or they wouldn't. I'd pick my stuff up and I'd pull my trolling motor up and run to the next one until I got a group to go off. Well, maybe I would run 20 spots in a day when I was fishing that way. Whenever I had forward-facing sonar, I'd pull up to a spot, I'd see them, well, there they are. Well, what normally would have took me 10 minutes to figure out if I was going to catch a fish there or not. Now I'm spending 30 or 45 minutes trying to get a fish to bite and I'm running half the spots. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then ultimately in the end, uh, you know, not having any different results or whatever. So you got to find the, the middle ground. Um, yeah. it can't, it's definitely not a, a cure-all by any means. Was there any pushback in the saltwater industry or did you follow it then when that came out especially in like the tournaments where guys like oh well he's following this marlin for miles with this quarter million dollar technology or was it more embraced in the saltwater no no absolutely it was uh you know a lot of people 
thought it was a big competitive disadvantage. But in the saltwater world, uh, no one cares if you can afford it or not. You either can afford to compete with the big boys or you just go sit on the dock kind of thing. They're a little more brutal about it. Uh, so, you know, you got these $10 million boats with these $250,000 sonars. And if you want to play this game with us, then uh, you better go get one too. So it took a long time uh, of the same guys dominating the Marlin tournaments before everyone else was finally like, all right, I'm going to make this investment. I'm, I'm tired of getting beat by this guy. Uh, and then now they say, if you don't have sonar, you can't compete. That's interesting. So this is just the same thing with what's going on with bass fishing on a very much smaller scale. Right. Because, exactly. I mean, I remember Crete talking, aren't these things, some of them like a hundred or fifty grand just to enter the tournament? The, yeah, so the tournaments can be expensive depending on how much stuff you sign up for. Um, Side pots, Calcutta, yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, you got Calcuttas and all that kind of stuff. Or you can just enter certain divisions. And But, yeah, they're, it's very, very expensive entries. Could you imagine a bass tournament? Like, let's do Thousand Islands. That'd be a perfect one. Where you come in, you could either pay, let's say, two grand for the tournament, or you could get in a side pot to make it up to five grand, and then you could either enter the largemouth division or the smallmouth division or the overall division, and now you've got 18 different ways to to make money out here and everyone's fishing on a different level based on their side pots that they're in and what species they're targeting. That's kind of what's going on in the saltwater, right? Yeah. So you can still enter the salt. It's designed to allow anyone to participate in a tournament, but you don't necessarily have to compete for the big money category. So say that we had a big tournament uh, with say 500 boats, like a giant tournament. And a lot of people were saying, you know what? I don't have the technology to compete. I don't have, the money to compete at the highest level. And I don't feel like I can personally compete in every part of it, but then you might be able to say, I'm just going to put my money on the biggest smallmouth, or I'm going to go for three different species and try to, you know, get an aggregate or something like that. Uh, There's, there's more ways to play the game than just say, I'm going to bring my biggest five or, or catch the most fish I can or whatever. We, you, you can break those categories down. It's kind of infinite, and that's what saltwater tournaments do. Do you, you think that would fly? Like, I'm thinking Table Rock Lake. Yeah. You got all three. I mean, you fish table. You see what that's like. That would be phenomenal. Do you think that we are pigeonholing ourselves in as far as expanding participations in tournaments by either doing just the catchway release format every – species is the same or just the five biggest do you think you'd see more participation from people who are either intimidated or don't feel like they would want to compete at that but hey i I think i could go out and 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 catch the one and you know not have to compete against the 150 i think there's some interesting possibilities that are just racing through my mind right now as far as you really want to increase participation, get people out on the water. Hey, Gerald Spore is fishing this tournament, and he's in every side pot and the five biggest overall and the most and the whole nine yards, but I don't have to compete against him. I really like catching spotted bass. I'm in the spotted bass division. That's it. You could do like five biggest spotted bass. You could do five biggest of each uh, species. Yeah. And then you could say, you know what? I'm just – I want – bag. The biggest spotted bass, the biggest largemouth, and the biggest smallmouth, and that's the division I'm in. And then you can sign up for those three. So then there's six divisions right there. 
Yeah. So then like a guy that says, I want to win overall. And like the biggest category may be like the biggest five fish stringer overall. And he could sign up for that. They may win the biggest prize. But, uh, you know, another guy, that guy may not be able to say, he might say, you know what, to catch 25 pounds, I got to go fish for five big largemouth. So he may not have the time to go look for the one big smallmouth to win the aggregate, you know? So, so it, it creates a, you, it's great for like, it would be great for like a charity tournament where you're trying to get as much participation as possible. Yeah. Uh, and then you can break down all these different categories and stuff. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of opportunity there that saw freshwater. We hadn't even looked at. You're blowing my mind with this stuff. <laughs> no, seriously. No, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, dude, now you can have, I mean, I understand sometimes they have like a, the kids division or a women's division or, you know, big bass or a side pop, but like, to really kind of change it up and, and give everybody a chance to show up. So like uh, uh, my girlfriend's a barrel racer, right? And it drives me absolutely nuts because uh, they do four or five divisions at barrel races. They have 1D, 2D, 3D, 4D, and 5D. And it took me a long time to figure it out. They have an equal payout for each division, right? So let's say 20 seconds us do 18 seconds is the first is 1d they run all the horses the first the fastest horse around all the barrels is 18 seconds that's the 1d winner then 18.5 is 2d 19 is 3d 19.5 is 4d and 20 is 5d well she wins the 1d and gets 800 bucks the person wins the 2d gets roughly 800 3d 800 4d 800 and i'm sitting there going this is ridiculous there's 200 horses in this thing you're getting paid 800 you're beating 199 what's the point and it took me a while to realize well you know there's there's bpt there's elite series guys that are at this barrel race and if they just paid out the top 10 no one else would show up because they know they're going to get beat. Yeah, some would for practice or for fun, but the the half-second increments allow for more of the field to enjoy it and feel like you're in it and you have a chance to compete and you have that chance to win. Yep, yep. Even if you just split the divisions, you say we got an every fish counts division yep. and your biggest five division, and you're saying, well, man, I can't win the biggest five division if I keep catching these numbers. So some, but you like, if I abandon these numbers, I'm not going to win that one either. So you got to try to apex series, Gerald, you follow the apex series out on the West. That's what they do. Really? I got they you. do the apex series. So like, uh, I think ish fish is it. Littner's jumped in some of them. Ken Ma, we've had them on. So they have their qualifying days, right? You can either do number of keepers or your five biggest overall. So let's say you're out on the Delta and you catch, 17 14 inch bass so you have 17 for that day well if your five biggest are 26 pounds you still weigh in your five biggest so you have 17 total keepers and your five biggest is 26 well let's say there's then the next day you decide you have to decide you're either in the top uh top five of the overall after two days of your five biggest for the weight or the top five in the number of keepers then they zero all the weights in the final day is 10 guys five biggest way in but you can make the finals and you however it's top five through keepers top five through weight it's really cool scenario because you have guys that flip-flop right like you think you're got a five bass sack but you're in 15th place and then the next day you go try to drop shot up keepers or vice versa that's a little bit of the hybrid formula but there's a billion other options that i think Mm -hmm. i think we're really close-minded right now to get to the quote grow the sport that everyone wants to talk about that how would that not grow the sport 
yep, any way you can get someone competing in bass fishing, um, then the better off we all are. Good stuff. All right. Talking with BPT Pro, Gerald Sport in Louisiana, about saltwater, about freshwater, about saltwater in freshwater, electronics, the hybrid. Good segment. We'll be back right after this. This is BTO. Your key to better fishing this season is Elite FS, now available at a new lower price. Get Elite FS9 today for $9.99, and we'll throw in a CMAP reveal chart, our premium mapping solution for free. Elite FS works with all state-of-the-art Lorenz sonar, from chirp, side-scan, and down-scan imaging with fish reveal to high-resolution active target live sonar. Elite FS9 and CMAP reveal. Offer ends August 31st. The new Puma STS has been redesigned from the ground up. With the angler, design, function, and performance in mind, nothing on this new offering was compromised, and the only thing carried over from the previous version is the name. Based on the soft touch series hull that started with the flagship Jaguar, this new model is nimble and performs incredibly well at all speeds with either a 250 or 300 horsepower engine. Featuring a new 96 inch wide body footprint, this hull measures out at 20 foot 7 inches in length. Industry leading design coupled with tournament winning performance. The Puma STS from Basscat. Feel the rush. When you're catching fish for a living, you can't let a little cold, rain, heat, humidity, or anything else get in the way of a payday. I wear APCO. Any fish, any water. The KVD 100 Jerkbait. 15 different colors. A perfect combination of roll, wiggle, and flash. Increased castability. 3D eyes. Premium black nickel hooks. KVD. Tie one on. Striking lures. Have you considered purchasing new electronics for your rig? The type of mounts you choose to protect your investment should be part of the decision-making process. No matter if you prefer one, two, or three graphs up front, Beatdown Outdoors has a solution for you. Adjustable, versatile, rigid, and made in the USA. What's your ultimate electronic setup? Check out the full selection of Beatdown Outdoors products by visiting beatdownoutdoors.com. Get the best patterns backed by tournament data. Start by finding the best 10% of your lake. Know exactly what to look for and what to throw. After that, you just put them in the boat. Try the Deep Dive app today. Look at that beast right there. Welcome back. BTL talking with Gerald Sport. And after that first segment, I now have a burning desire to be a multi-species tournament director. I'm just kidding. Is there a th- more thankless job on earth than being a high-level competitive tournament director, Gerald? We definitely underappreciate those guys. <laughs> I, I 100% agree on that. I would love to to just be a fly on the wall for a tournament director for a season and actually know what goes on behind the scenes. You know, I never really had a tournament director 
like tell me the truth about it being about being a tournament director. But now one of my really good buddies is Jeff Welsh, who owns Bass Champs in Texas. And so he has giant team tournaments, three or four mm-hmm. team tournaments. And uh, he saw, he, of course, he saltwater fishes. That's uh, actually Jeff Creed's partner in, yeah. uh, in the Freeman that they have down on. Oh, the- I think I've been out with them before one time. Yeah, so Welsh is uh, a really cool dude. He he he's one of the owners of Bass Champs in Texas, and you know, so I get to hear it all about all the challenges of being a tournament <laughs> director that you would not hear from like the tournament directors I directly yeah. do. You know, yeah. I don't fish Bass Champs, so I get the truth. <laughs> yeah, because like if you're a tournament director, it has to be really lonely to be at an event and stuff because. A, because really the only people you have around you are the other people like your assistant tournament director and other people in the organization because you're out, you obviously you can't be like buddies with the anglers, right? Like you have to be cordial and understand, but like you can't be like out having beers with guys or relaxing. Like you have to have a very tight small group in order to remain impartial and fair. Like like Trip, like I don't know who any of Trip's good buddies are. I would imagine they'd have to be guys that aren't you spent a lot of time on the road, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Before we retired. Same with that. That's interesting. Yeah, he said some of the hardest things he's had to uh, enforce rules on yeah. over the years is people that he was friends with. And so it makes it difficult whenever one of your buddies is in the tournament and then all of a sudden he gets reported for not wearing his life jacket or going through an idle zone too fast or something, and you got to confront him and, over it. <laughs> and the other thing about tournament directors is, have you ever met anybody who's an aspiring tournament director? You ever met anyone who's like, what do you want to do? And he's like a kid, and he's like, when I grow up, I want to be a tournament director. Like, it, it, you kind of end up in that role. Like, like uh, yeah. on the bass side, like, kind of Hank was groomed for it, right, through through Trip and that. And then Trip was like a competitor before tournament. It just, it's interesting, the dynamic of how you're yeah, going to, <laughs> to be a tournament director. Yeah, there's a lot of BS, I think, you have to put up with behind the scenes. Yes. All right, let's get back on the water. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is you've had a very consistent uh, career. We've talked about before, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been the stories documented. You were not a kid who grew up from the age of three idolizing professional bass fishing, wanting to do it your entire life and spending a ton of time on the water bass fishing. It was something that you kind of got into. You had a very good career leading into it. and You caught the bug later in life at that professional level, correct? No, no, correct. I'll, I'll, I'll re-correct that. I actually was obsessed with professional bass fishing when I was a little kid. Okay. Never had the opportunity to do it until okay. I was Okay. So you were obsessed, but as far as the fishing, you didn't like grow up fishing junior stuff and tournaments mm-hmm. every single weekend and that. That's where I got it, right? No one else in my family uh, bass fished. Okay. So, so I actually you- started, I caught my first fish, uh, was a redfish, saltwater. So that goes back to why I love saltwater fishing. I got you. Because my my mom's side of the family lived on the coast of okay. Louisiana, like way down there by Grand Isle, Louisiana. Uh, that's where my mom grew up. So they would take me down there, and I would catch saltwater fish. And when I was real little, uh, my my mom's dad passed away whenever I was young, and he was the one that like was like taking me fishing, and that's all I wanted to do was have grandpa take me fishing. And then he died when I was real young. So the supplement to that was I would try to, I would make my dad take me fishing, but my dad wasn't a fisherman. 
And so my dad would just say, all right, I'll take you fishing all you want. But he would take me to like a buddy's house down the road with a pond and he would sit in the truck and listen to a Saints game or uh, he was he, he owned his own construction companies. He was always looking at blueprints and things like that. And I would just make laps around a pond. And at the time, I didn't realize what it was all setting up to be, you know, but I just wanted to catch fish. I didn't care what they were. And then I would turn on TV if I wasn't able to go fishing, I would watch it on TV. And most of the stuff that was on TV was Bill Dance, Roland Martin, all of that. And so then everyone would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be one of those guys. Uh, that's all I want to do is fish. I and, got you. But you hadn't know, fish tournaments. But I never fished tournaments until I got old enough to drive myself and afford my own boat. And, uh, and I, you know, I had to, my parents believed in, uh, if you want it, you got to go out and earn it. And so I would have to save my money and do all that stuff. And so it was a slower process. All right. So kind of set the backstage, which I totally screwed up. I apologize on that. I had that <laughs> wrong, Gerald. But I did have wrong that you didn't start tournament fishing until later in life. Right. Yeah. Because that's what I, I found interesting was, you know, I think, what, three, four years of the Open, four years of the Opens, you qualify for the Elite Series, and you've always been – You've always been a very consistent angler. Uh, your best, you had a career year last year, top 10 in the BPT point standings. Great season. Would you have three top 10s, I think? Three or four. Three or four top 10s last year. But consistency wise, after getting into this game, I'm curious. Consistency is what everyone strives for. Uh, and putting yourself, at, at least in my opinion, putting yourself in position to, to do well in catching fish. But are there some things over the course of your journey from first qualifying for the elite series until now that seem to be truths coast to coast as far as consistently finding and putting fish in the boat yeah uh it took me a little while when i first started traveling and competing i went all in real aggressive with it i signed up for tons of tournaments um and i thought it was all about the network you had to have some sort of network and you had to be able to implement it with your skill sets on the water to be successful. Um, well, that may work for some people. That was, was some of the, you know, I say in the beginning, I was inconsistent more in the beginning, even though I, I was, I, I was making some top tens right off the bat early on in my career, but uh, I was, I would bomb a tournament and then I made top 10 the next one. And a lot of that had to do with just me learning how to fish all over the country and stuff. But ultimately I found as my career progressed that the, the least amount of information that I would have going into a tournament, the better I would typically do. And when I mean information, I'm not talking about a guy giving me a waypoint and telling me where to go catch a bass. I'm talking about going into a, uh, a fishery with a preconceived notion that I've got to catch them this way to do well. Uh, I would rather go to a place and only know basic information. Like, is there grass on the North end of the lake? Uh, is there, is the water clearer, dirtier? Does it get rough? Where's the boat ramp? Stuff like that. And what's their primary forage? forage? Does it have small mouth, spotted bass in large mouth? You know, general information like that. And then I like to show up, to the lake and just slowly let all the pieces to the puzzle come together. 
It's very, very uncomfortable. But by the end of practice, you'll be surprised with how much you know. And you still don't know enough where you're comfortable going into the tournament. So if you ever ask me, you can ask any of my buddies, they'll text me at the end of practice. They're like, well, you on them? Mm-hmm. And I'll never say yes. I'm like, I don't know. Well, first of all, I don't set the hook. And second of all, as soon as I get a slightest little piece of information, I'm moving on. And I'm just gathering all these little pieces of information over the, we only get two days of practice in the basketball right. tour. And so I have to cover water. I'm not the guy that wants to go hunker down in one little Creek and say, I'm going to learn everything about this Creek. And this is where I'm going to spend my tournament. <clears throat> I'll run all over the lake. A lot of times, like we just went to Cayuga. I made the whole circle in Cayuga. Holy uh, cow. That's big. I went like after the open for a day and drove from, literally the north to south end and back and it was like an entire tank of gas and i was like wow that is a huge lake compared to what it just looks like yeah exactly and i actually rode the perimeter all the way around wow uh, and and i was just <laughs> you know i would pull in this one little pocket or this little bay and i would just say how's the grass over here and all i was doing was acknowledging things i wasn't necessarily fishing and then whenever I got to the end of, of the lake, I was like, okay, this is the part I like the most. I'm going to spend my next day of practice trying to learn some more about this region of the lake. And then I, I just had tiny little pieces of information. And then as the tournament evolves, I just make decisions off of feel. And, uh, okay, the wind's blowing. I remember seeing some good grass on the east side of the lake. Let me run over there and go flip grass, even though I hadn't even fished it yet. Uh, someone taught me a long time ago, uh, one of the best local tournament anglers that I, that I know, uh, he said, right in the, something that stuck to me in the beginning, he goes, if you ever want to be good at tournament bass fishing, you can't be scared to practice during the tournament. And that stuck with me. You know, practice doesn't end when the tournament starts. I, I, I have to, uh, I, I just want just enough information to let my practice keep getting better you know, when you, sometimes when you show up to a lake and you don't know anything and right off the bat, you call your buddy by noon and you're like, well, I already caught 20 pounds. Kind of in trouble usually. You're in trouble because you got stuck on that. But it's an example of how free your mind was when you started. You know what I mean? You didn't have a bunch of things telling you where to go every single time. So I try to keep my mind at that infancy stage of approaching a lake I try to keep it like that throughout the tournament. So hard. And, and the ones to me, the, when you want it to all come together is on day four of the tournament. If you can be kind of fumbling your way through it and learning, and by the time you get to day four, you're like, all right, we're about to wreck them mm-hmm. and try to win this tournament. And then and the, to me, the best guys in the sport, I study them. Um their instinct is their number one attribute. You know, like a Jordan Lee, that dude don't know where he's about to go catch a bass. He That's just the has, truth. He has this sick mindset of decision-making that just attracts him to do the right things all the time. Everyone's like, how does he know how to do that? Well, I remember writing an article years ago. I understood this probably four or five years ago. It all kind of came to light for me. And I wrote an article. It's called Protecting Your Instincts. <clears throat> it's an old Bassmaster article. You could probably find it. And, and, and the whole point of the article was the most powerful tool we have as fishermen is instincts. 
Well, whenever we have preconceived notions or someone tells us where to fish, we don't use our instincts. So we don't give our instincts a chance. But when you go to a lake without any information at all and you allow your instincts to take 100% control, then you'll be surprised at what you can achieve. Um, and, and so that's what I've been trying to preach to anglers since the beginning, since I started all this stuff. I think it's important there. There's going to be growing pains with that, right? Like, like if you have to develop those and build those, and then that's what leads to you being a talented angler to be able to make that because your instincts are, are honed based on experience and a lot of bad experience. It's all on feel. And the only way you're going to have feel is, is by, by being uh, open-minded and kind of flowing. And it's hard to explain, but all I can do is tell people, if you're going to go practice fishing, if you're just going to go fishing outside of a tournament, instead of just saying, I'm going to go try to get really good at throwing a drop shot, all that stuff's easy. Techniques, you can learn them in hours. You watch one or two YouTube videos. You go out there and you apply it on the water. You're like, okay, I get it. This is not hard. The hard part about tournament fishing, I mean, fun fishing is saying, let me go to a lake, pick a lake that I've never been to before. And let me just go try this and go there for like two days by yourself and just let it all come together on your own. And then when you leave the lake in two days, it's like, dang, that was, I, I really get this place now. And I'm surprised at how well I was able to figure it out. And if you can apply that in your tournament bass fishing, then that's whenever you're going to have better tournaments and be more consistent. You know, it's interesting. You look at the kind of hotbeds where a lot of guys are coming out of now. And I think that Wisconsin, Minnesota area is like really big. We see uh, Seth Fighter defending angler of the year. And a lot of the uh, Northern guys, especially that Minnesota area, right? A lot of talented anglers I think are, are coming mm -hmm. out of that. Well, it's kind of the same with the TVA guys, the guys around Gunnersville, the guys around Chickamauga is they have a ton of different options. They can fish different fisheries every single day. They can experience different conditions. They can experience different things. Mm -hmm. In Minnesota, like, I mean, I watch a little YouTube series, Sam Sobe, who does a great job on it. It's called Tourney Tuesdays. Their tournament series is like nine or ten weeks long, and they fish a different lake every week. There's like not many places in the country that you can have a Wednesday nighter where you're on, like, okay, for us in Oklahoma, it's like Thunderbird. <laughs> Thunder, the Wednesday night are here every week. They're going to a different one, different conditions, different circumstances. That has to be able to help you hone your skills when you can go to so many different fisheries within 30 minutes of the house on a weeknight and do exactly what you just talked about. Yeah, it definitely helps. Uh, so th that's why years ago, when, we, when I first started fishing, we had, we, you know, it was wide open as far as getting information and everything. And guys were getting waypoints yeah. and all this kind of stuff. It was all perfectly legal back then. Uh, but nowadays we have a no information rule. And for the longest time, we couldn't even talk in the house. And, you know, I've got three other roommates. I room with Josh Bertrand, James Elam, and Roy Hawk. And uh, for the longest time, we couldn't even discuss anything. Like, I couldn't even tell you if they were biting a spinnerbait or whatever. Uh, I mean, it was like zero talking about fishing in the house for the first mm -hmm. two seasons on the Bass Pro Tour. Um, That's awkward because you have to learn like their kids' names and you have to talk about real life and like 
heck, I don't even know any of the guys' kids' names or what they do in their off time. Like, you have to, it's like you are forced to talk about things other than fishing. It makes you realize we don't talk about anything other than fishing for the last 10 years. It was, I loved it when it was like that. Like it was, it was so simple and it's still simple in the house. I got a great group of roommates, but I'm just saying, uh, I didn't have to worry about putting all my information out there or no one, no one, there was never that. Everyone's on equal. Everyone's on, on equal. We talked about football and, and, you know, just what's going on at home and whatever. But you didn't – it was pretty easy for us. And then they made it to where we can't talk about specific locations, but now we can talk about patterns and general locations. So I could say, man, the north end of the lake's fishing really good. As long as I don't say fish that last stretch of docks on the right when you get up north, you know, that's specific. But um, – you got general information, but even I found the general information has been messing me up. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, let me just try being general. And so we will talk like all of a sudden someone starts catching them on a crankbait. Well, I'm over there uh, throwing a chatterbait on a flat and someone else is cranking steep rocky banks. And James Eastland calls me and he's like, Hey dude, they're biting a crankbait. I just caught five good ones in a row. I went to two other banks and it was just like that. You might want to pick up a crankbait. Well, I found myself putting my chatterbait down, even though that was my instincts that had mm-hmm. brought me there. I put that down. I immediately start running James Elam's pattern. And, uh, and then that ended up ultimately kind of going against what I normally do this year, not, not taking out on James or anything, but we were, yeah, ha- yeah, no, no, we were having these do. conversations a lot in practice. And, and I found myself not using my instincts at all. And this year has been one of my most inconsistent years. So I told him the last, when we got to Watts bar, uh, the last term before last, I said, look, guys, I said, anything y'all want to know, you can call me. I'll tell you anything, but I don't want to hear anything. I don't want nothing. And, um, and yeah, it was, it's a creepy feeling feeling you're, you're by yourself at that point. Yeah. And you know, everyone else is talking and the only time I, <laughs> I'll say like, if it's the last hour of practice and you're not on squat, then maybe, all right, dude, throw me a bone. And then you want something pure. You want to make, <laughs> I, dude, I think in the opens, I think I'm very guilty of this as well, right? Like, I have what I feel I'm good at, what I have com- com- confidence in. But uh, it's ironic. Out of all the uh, – Rojas is the one who taught this at the beginning. Like, he would room with guys in the uh, Elite Series and stuff back then. You know, you could get info and all that. But he told me once, I was like, what? You don't really, like, share much. You kind of go to bed early and all that. And he's like, dude, he's like, I got to where I was – not because of sharing information with people, but because I could catch fish. And the way I catch fish is unique and different from the way anyone else's catches fish. And the more information that I get, the more I become like other people. He said, I got the frog thing. I do what you're not supposed to do. And he goes, I want my decisions to be pure. He goes, and even if it's unintentional, even if it's seeing a rod at a dock from a local, if it's anything, he goes, that will taint my decision making because it will always be an option. Then We're talking totally legal stuff. He goes, if I don't know what anyone else is doing, I'm staying by myself. I haven't talked of any information. Every decision I make is my decision, and I don't question it because I know it comes from some library, some vault in my head that has got me to where I am today. So he said, I can handle sucking 
making my decisions. But when other decisions creep in, he's like, now am I really making my decisions or now am I down a path that has been changed because of an outside influence? That's it. I was like, dude, that made a lot of sense, but it's so easy to get sucked into it because we're pack animals, Gerald, like the human species. Mm -hmm. Like we want interaction. We want feedback. We want to be validated in our feelings and our emotions and our decisions. Like we look for feedback. We look for validation and it's hard to a hundred percent trust, I guess. And it, and it works both ways too. You also hear about guys. I mean, look, you just watch the thing at Oahe and there's five guys lined up that are casting the same dang rock that are all rooming together. I get it, dude. Yesterday I bought a new truck and I couldn't decide if I wanted the white one or the black one. I had to have someone tell me. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All I, right, we're going to take our final break of the day. When we come back, uh, we're talking with Gerald Spore, BPT pro. Um, I want to get into uh, some themes that you've noticed over the course of your career. I know what we just talked about, but within those themes, are there confidence baits that you have developed that seem to work region to region across the country? What are you always going to have on your front deck, if anything, when you go to a fishery? So BTL with Gerald Spore, we'll be back right after this. Vibrating jigs are a great choice for any time of year, and the Kamikaze Swim-On is a perfect match for any vibrating jig. Two sizes and a unique tail design gives it a bait fish profile and a great swimming action for realism. There are 17 colors. See them all at BigBiteBaits.com. The Spro Little John crankbait has been around for almost 15 years, and it is one of my go-to crankbaits whenever I need a fish in the boat, so you can never have enough new colors. That's why Spro's coming out with a handful of new colors, including Pearl Shad, which has this bleached out white look, but it's got this pearlescent, really, really pretty. We've got Copper Shad, which looks amazing in the water. It's got that purple flake on the back, really, really pops in the water. And then if you want some real pop, we've got Sparkle Shad, nothing but sparkles all over this thing. And then last but not least, we've got the matte sexy shad just a really different looking color for a crankbait so you want to give them a little different look that matte sexy shad is definitely the one to go with all these colors are available in the original little john and the md combining one of the most popular hook styles with gamakatsu's beefier superline offering the gamakatsu superline offset round bend delivers the strength necessary to target big fish in heavy cover. Well suited for braided line and heavier fluorocarbon, the Gamakatsu Superline Offset Round Bend is built using stronger Superline wire that allows anglers to easily fish a finesse worm around heavy cover. The Round Bend offers a larger bite area, perfect for any worm presentation, while increasing your hookup ratios. The newly enhanced Z-Bend holds your plastics on the hook longer, reducing the number of pull-offs and reducing damage to plastics. Available in 2-0, 3-0, 4-0, and 5-0, this is the most durable worm hook, designed for heavier lines that hold your bait on longer. Preparation is key to success. And that preparation starts well before you ever hit the water. You're only as strong as your connection to the fish, and your line is that critical connection. Confidence in your line every minute of every day on the water is a necessity, and failure, it's not an option. Sunline makes the fluorocarbon, 
nylon, and braided lines to give you the strength to guarantee your confidence. The new Android series is the peak of the Denali lineup and offers the ultimate Denali experience. The Android series features 36-ton multi-directional graphite combined with interlock blank technology for added strength. Each rod is outfitted with royal titanium guides that will not fail. The blank is fitted into an easy-touch, soft-feel EVA foam grip with exposed blank reel seat. This all allows the Android to transmit every movement of your bait and even the most subtle bites. The Android series is the finest rod Denali has ever made and offers an angler the ultimate fishing experience with a limited lifetime warranty. See the full lineup of Android rods at DenaliRods.com. We're back wrapping things up with Gerald Spore BPT Pro. Talking a lot of mental game, a lot of decisions, a lot of getting comfortable, relying on yourself. So then I left it as to, I mean, I guess technically in theory, if you were to apply exactly what we just talked about, Gerald, you would start practice for every event with eight rods on your front deck and not a dang thing tied on any one of them. And it wouldn't be until you've surveyed the entire fishery and got or gotten a feel for it and until something came to your mind that you would say, this is what I want to tie on. Because anything you tie on before you get to the fishery is in itself a preconceived notion. Right? I mean, if we're play, if we're going to go down that route, right? No, not necessarily. Okay. Uh, I, so what works for me, it, you know, it could be different for everyone. I'm not trying to tell people to go do the things that I do. Uh, but this is what I found works for me. But uh, I tie, I tie on, I look at my tackle as like a, uh, a basic set of tools. Like if you were a mechanic and you just had, and you were going out to fix something on a job and you were just going to put you a basic set of tools in a tool bag, to, you, you know, you may not be able to rebuild the engine with that, but at I least you. I can kind of start, I got something to start with. And so I'll tie on the basic set of tools, a chatterbait, a square bill, a flip and stick, a top water bait and I'll just kind of like have something for each water column and what's an effective tool for that job. It may not be the perfect color or the perfect depth range or the perfect one for that structure, but I'm still going to have something on so I can process water. That makes sense. So the generals, the, the general gen- things. So then once you realize that, that tool is working. It, so let's say, let's use a tool analogy, a set of needle nose pliers. You might need a bigger set of pliers, a set of locking pliers, a longer set, more torque, less torque. It might need to be finer, but you know that, hey, I need a, a, a pair of pliers for this job. And then you figure out what the best plier is. You go back to your truck, your tool truck, your kit, your garage or whatever. And that's when you pull out the right tool for the job. I like it. It makes sense. So run over your coast to coast general again. I know you mentioned that. So your number one, it seems would be a, a bladed jig of some sort. A, a bladed jig is definitely, uh, there's a reason it's been dominating over the years across every circuit, any kind of format, every species. It's a very, very versatile lure and you can cover a lot of water with it and they bite it. So it's a confidence bait that you can just process water with. Cause a lot of times when I'm going down the bank, I'm looking and I'm not even looking where I'm casting. I'm right. just throwing and just kind of just looking around. And then if I see something that says, Ooh, that's really good. I'm going to throw at that. Let me see a fisher relating to that. I can just pretty much put that bladed jig just about anywhere. Okay. And then you talked about general information before that you like to know kind of what the forage is, if there's grass or not. So is that going to determine whether it's a shad pattern or green pumpkin? 
so <clears throat> most of the time that that is pretty easy to figure out wherever you go. That's pretty generic across the country. Um, early, early in the year, I want to know if the water is going to be dirty or clear. Most of the time we're going to start out in the South. Most of the water is going to be dirty. So I'm always, I'm always going to either have, I've caught plenty of fish and had plenty of good tournaments with a green pumpkin chatterbait in muddy water. All right. And, and then, and then I'll have a white one, okay. white or green pumpkin. That's, so that's like, that's the tool. That's the overall tool. So you have the bladed jig. You also set a square bill. Yeah. So I like a square bill and it'll either be a shad pattern or something bright, like a chartreuse or a shad pattern of some kind. 1.5 size, nothing fancy, just a, just something that runs true that you know you can get a reaction bite on. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Uh, but just a good square bill that you know you can bang off cover and throw against some, some rocks or against docks or whatever. A square bill is a pretty versatile lure. All right. Then you said a flip bait, right? <clears throat> yep. Yep. Uh, I pretty much have a D-bomb tied on all the time, uh, year round. And, and just because I know it gets bit, I can punch with it. I can fish it. I can put a light weight on it and I can fish it slower. I can drag it. Um, uh, it's, it's just a, a, it's a confidence flipping bait for me. I got you. You know, if there's something that's, that's, in the grass that's hugging tight to cover, that's going to at least give you some feedback. It's going to get bit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then you said a top water, which kind of surprised me. Uh, yeah, that depends on the time of the year. But, you know, as soon as that water temperature gets into the 60s, you could catch them on buzz baits, frogs, all that kind of stuff. And the reason I want some like some sort of top water, uh, usually I'll have like a frog or buzz bait usually a frog's always tied on just because if I pull up in one little area and they got some vegetation or some, some sort of maybe windblown matted stuff or whatever, mm-hmm. and you just need something weedless that's on top because it's like the only tool that you can use for that job. Uh, I'm not going to roll a swim bait through a windblown uh, grass cut that was cut yeah. off some dude's yard. You know, it, the fish can be under anything. It doesn't necessarily have to be a lily pad. Uh, so a, a frog is a unique tool. It's it's one of a kind. It's weedless and it's on top. And I can just see if I can get some sort of reaction strike from underneath cover. And you pretty much see some sort of cover like that anywhere you go. Uh, so I always have a frog tied on because you never know when you're going to run into that. And, uh, and then top water is just one of those things that, you know, if you, you just always wonder – I wonder if they're they're hitting stuff. You always see things hitting on top, you know. It's like, now I wonder if I just throw this top water around for a minute if something's going to smash it. All right. So, so all these things give you little clues, little pieces to the puzzle that you're trying to figure out. And if you have them on the front deck and ready to roll in your confidence in, in fish catching colors and your confidence bait, instead of just going, I wonder what that is on the surface, and keep going down the bank doing what you're doing. You just pick up the top water, cast it over there, make a couple casts. Right. So if I see the if I see a situation, I'm constantly trying to look for the perfect situation for each one of these lures. Right. And if I see the perfect little spot where uh sorry, my neighbor's walking up looking for me right now. I know you know I'm on a podcast, but <laughs> if I see the perfect little spot to throw a topwater bait, can you go tell Matt Maggie? He's out there. Uh <laughs> 
As long as he's not looking for you for money or something, you're good. Oh, you got be with his hand. He's ready to drink. Uh-oh, he's ready to have a good time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I see the perfect little spot to throw a topwater bait. And and I'm like, dang, dude, that really – I would really love to throw some sort of topwater bait across that point. And it's sitting right there on the deck, and I could just pick it up, you're and I can throw it across like the perfect situation if I don't get a bite. Then it's not so much in my head, but if I do get a bite, then I could say, "How many places do they have like this?" You know, and then I, like I can look at a map real quick and say, "Dang, there's points like this all over the lake," and then I quickly can analyze that situation. Um, but the water—I mean, top water is a little different because it's typically based off of uh, water temperature and shad spawn and a lot of other variables. So it's, it's not really the prime example. It's not like the most priority thing. Right. If I'm going to pick the priority baits, it's going to be a flipping stick, uh, a chatter bait, uh, a square bill. I like to have a spinner bait on deck a lot uh, just because if I get in an area that has a lot of wood or a lot of things that will snag a chatter bait, mm-hmm. I, I got my spinner bait at least. A lot of reaction baits here. In your go-to stuff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of reaction baits. Um, and then if I go somewhere like a Smith Lake, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a wacky worm on for sure in a drop shot. Now, lately, I'll tell you this, I've never been a wacky wormer. Never. I'm like, screw you, I'm not fishing that thing. But now with forward-facing sonar, I have a completely diff- uh, different perspective on wacky worming. Because I could see the bait, I and I and I could see the fish. So before I used to just fish real slow with a wacky worm, and wondering if a fish is looking at it or not. And, and but now I can turn my active target, and I'm like, "There's one," and I know if I throw that wacky worm over there, he's going to eat it. So it completely changed my outlook on wacky worming. And then like now I'm 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 using like a I like to put like a three thirty second net weight in the end of it, or even. A, uh, a 164s and and you'll be surprised at how fast that thing falls so if you see a fish suspended in 20 foot of water i can flick a wacky worm over there real fast within seconds that wacky worms in that fish's face and i barely got to twist the rod and it stops at whatever water depth i wanted to it has become a really versatile tool for me uh, for covering water believe it or not a wacky worm of all things it's good stuff there's been a lot of money one on that. I think the first time it was really, I mean, obviously it's been used FLW tour guys like thrift and Dudley, and Cody Meyer and all them. Like they made millions of dollars back in the two thousands on that thing. Because remember they used to call it the shaky head tour. What they should have called it was the wacky word. worm and Nico tour. Yeah. But, uh, I, I mean, there you had, uh, Jordan Lee that won the classic on it on Hartwell, uh, when those big largemouth moved up and now it's just, you know, we've seen some of the Japanese guys offshore do like some really weird, deep, uh, wacky worm stuff with like bigger and smaller. It's a it's a very versatile bait, and I think I, I'm I'm interested that you you mentioned that because I think you see it pretty much every tournament now. Yeah, for it's, the most it's, part, it's going to be on my deck. Uh, I think it's more it's more versatile. A Nico wacky rig is more versatile than just about anything. I can fish any water depth, and I can pause that bait at any water at any part of the fall. It's amazing the success that the the Japanese anglers on the opens have had. So you're talking 220 to 240 boats, no off limits, high pressure, community hole areas. 
that those guys are using i mean it's they're always in the top 10 gallery right because they're they're catching fish and the nico rigged stuff i mean like i said like me and you or like me at least i'm like worm worm you can do a worm you can do a cinco maybe do a fat cinco slim cinco you can do a big worm little worm they're like doing stuff they're like what the heck is that supposed to look like yeah. they're doing like fish crawfish stuff that doesn't look like anything all sorts of crazy stuff and they're getting that bait like you said down there in a highly pressured situation around other boats and literally just beating everybody because of their prowess with nail weights and wacky rigged baits that are outside the box. It allows you to control a piece of plastic in whatever way you want to shape it. It's mind blowing. And I didn't realize how much control I had until forward facing sonar. And that's, I guess that's what like your Cody Myers and all of them figured out years ago, they were doing it without seeing it. Whether it, whether it was from all the times they went to Beaver Lake and all that stuff where it was really clear mm-hmm. and they could see, you know, but uh, I never knew I had that much control over the bait. And now I could see everything on active target. And it's like, oh, my goodness, dude. I'll, I caught some fish on Smith Lake and 50 foot of water on a wacky worm and had no problem getting the bait down that deep. Um, if you want to throw something like that on the Tennessee River on ledges, Man, everyone throws drop shots and drags big worms and all this other stuff. And so Brandon Lester in the Elite Series this year. Throw a nail weighted wacky worm up there on a ledge in 25 foot of water. And uh, it, a lot of times when you see those fish that won't bite anything, they'll bite that. That's good stuff. Uh, I did find the article. It was penned by you on October 9th, 2017. And all you have to Google is protect your instinct, Gerald Spore. And uh, it's a good read. It's interesting, eight nine twenty twenty two two. That's five six years ago that you did that. And I have the same perspective today. Yep. And you've had a really good, really solid run over the last five years since kind of figuring that out. So two thousand seventeen was my first year on the Elite Series, and that was that was a beat. That like they beat me bad, <laughs> but it, it was uh, I didn't really understand, and you know I didn't. I was so I, I had gotten to that point so quickly. Uh, you know, I'm uh, 2015. I was working full time at Shell Chemical and working turnarounds in the plant. Um, and next thing you know, 2017, I'm on the Elite Series. So I mean, it happened really fast for me. I got I progressed really quickly. So when I got there, I kind of hit a wall, and I didn't. You know, it was a quick little learning curve I had to figure out. But then in 2018, I backed it up with like 12th in points on arguably the toughest year the elite series ever existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so that kind of gave me my confidence. Well, 2017, when I wrote that article, what do you said? October? Yeah. October 9th, right at the end of the year. So that bad season in 2017 was what made me put everything in perspective. That's what made me look back and say, what did I do wrong? I was having too many conversations. I was too worried about, what Kevin Van Dam was doing or whatever, you know, I'm around all these big pros and I'm running down the lake and I'll see KVD over there jerk baiting out in the middle of the lake. And, and I'm immediately, I'm like, Oh my goodness, well, I need to be out here. Somewhere. What am I missing? What am I missing? I'm missing everything. I'm fishing completely different than everybody I'm seeing fishing. And that was how my head was wrapped up the whole 2017 season. That's why I was really inconsistent. But then that's why I wrote that article because I pondered on it a bunch and I realized that I wasn't doing my own thing. And so 
the instinct part was what was so important to me. And, um, and so I wrote that article and then the following year is whenever I had my kind of my breakout year, you know, I was like, dang, I think I had three or four top tens that year on the elite series, um, and qualified for the classic and everything else. And, and, and so then that's whenever it kind of solidified it. I was like, all right, this is how I need to think from now on. I need to do my own thing and run around the lake with blinders on. And so a lot of times my buddy was like, oh, I seen you run by me. You didn't even wave. It's like, cause I wasn't even looking. I didn't even know. I you. didn't care that you were over there because I'm doing my own thing. Not that I don't care. I just don't yeah. want to see him. I yeah. don't want to know if I see him snapping a ride and he's no, throwing a jerk bait. I don't, we all that stuff, like you said, Dean was saying, that throws me off. Because um, now you can't unsee it. Now you can't unsee it. <laughs> and, and so I try to, I try to block all of that. Um, but then there's other anglers I see running down the lake and you think they're going to break their neck. Trying to I see. know that's the weird thing about this deal. Gerald is everybody can get to the same deal doing something different. Like yeah. there is no, there is no, this is the right path and the only way that you can do it. And look, 95% of the guys who are here followed this exact same path. It's like, a center hut. It's like one of those. Did you ever remember those like deals? It's like the electricity thing and ball in the middle. That's the BPT or the elite series or success at the professional level. And then there's all these like little offshoots of electricity, like at the, at the young kids, like, like science museums and stuff. To me, that's like how that's like the path to successful professional tournament fishing. Like and there's all sorts of hundreds of different shoots. Oh, absolutely. I remember uh, when Brandon Polinick won on Rayburn in 2017, I think. Yeah. Uh, when he won on Rayburn, <laughs> I was talking to him about it and I was like, how, how are you catching them at the end of the tournament? You know, and, and he was just like, dude, it'll blow your mind whenever you realize how many different ways you can catch a bass. Like we all think that this is the deal. This is what you got to be doing. And there's always another way. And it's funny whenever a guy like someone like Brandon Polinick, he's always finding a different way. In that particular tournament, I think he said he was going around with his 360 and he was pitching at vertical timber with a, uh, with a big worm and seeing fish suspended in vertical timber or something along them lines. Uh, <clears throat> which was know. off, which was off the charts in 2017. Like no one was doing that outside. Probably what Scott Martin. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, uh, it it was just a different way. No one was catching them that way. It was more of a shad spawn, post spawn tournament, and he's out there catching isolated individual fish. Which you know, those kind of things always shed light on the whole situation for me. It's, Everyone in the field could be throwing a chatterbait, and you might be able to go catch them on a jerkbait in the middle of the lake somewhere. <clears throat> That's good stuff. Uh, dude, I've enjoyed the heck out of this one, Gerald. I wasn't exactly sure where we were going to go. I kind of had like a premise, like I wanted to kind of get in the baits thing, but I I wasn't sure where this was going to go. And I, I think it was – I was entertained. It was definitely uh, – and definitely educational. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't, you texted me and said, hey, you want to record tomorrow, but you didn't even tell me what it was going to be about. 
So I, <laughs> I was hoping it was about something fun. I really didn't want to talk about any drama in the fishing industry no. or nothing like that. And just uh, good, clean fishing talk, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, entertain, educate, and engage. Those are three three premises of uh, BTL. Perfect. Keep it That's up. That's it. All right. Let me cue yeah. the exit music here. See, there it is. That means we've reached the end of another exciting edition of BTL. Where can we follow your saltwater adventures? Are you going to post this stuff on – you post the saltwater stuff and all that on your Instagram? and Yeah, Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok. We do a lot on TikTok. You're on t- – I see I've never been on TikTok. Me neither. Maggie does it all. Oh, but-, <laughs> but you have a channel on there. But, but Maggie makes sure she gets all our content and uh, she puts it all on TikTok. People love watching our saltwater stuff on TikTok. Are you going to do like trips and stuff? Like, are you going to be able to book a trip with Gerald or is this just your private no. getaway? No, this is my private getaway and I use it to work closely with sponsors. All my That's sponsors, smart. saltwater, freshwater affiliated. And uh, we just filmed a really awesome show that you'll see coming out here soon. It's 13 minutes long, I think it ended up being, but it's from Grundon's. And uh, they'll they'll post it on the uh, Major League Fishing website and on their page. But it's it's uh, three days of going through the bayou from frogging to sword fishing to bass fishing to everything. That's exciting stuff. Good stuff. All right, Gerald. Thank you very much. This has been BTL. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow.